have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew 21. We're going to continue our study through Matthew's Gospel, and we are reaching the end. We actually, last week, we entered the, the last week of the life of Jesus, and we'll continue um, looking at that this week. If you don't have a Bible, you can look in the pew in front of you, and there will be a Bible that looks like this one. Um, and if you don't have a Bible at home, you are welcome to take that with you. Um, no one will stop you on the way out. You can take it, and it is yours. It's our gift. If you uh, have trouble finding the passage, it is on page 826. That's where we'll see the passage. So 826, we'll read Matthew 21, verses 12 through 22, and we'll read that in just a few minutes. But what we're going to encounter in these verses, as, as we'll read in a few minutes, uh, the events of the passage are, are probably familiar to you. The, the overturning of the tables especially is, is, is a well-known passage. Uh, but these events find their significance or, or their clearest significance when considered in the context of Matthew's gospel. That's why we want to study through books of the Bible in context, because what Matthew said last week helps us understand what he says this week. And what Jesus did last week helps prepare the way for what happens this week. So if you weren't with us last week, we saw the, the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem for the final time, the, the triumphal entry as it's known. And, and what happens here, as, as one commentator summarizes in our passage, it serves as the sequel to and the culmination of the deliberately symbolic entry into the city that we saw last week. We see now in the verses that we'll read in just a minute, the Messiah stakes his claim in the central shrine of his people. Planned for prime time and maximum exposure, this event this, this morning was a demonstration calculated to an interrupt business as usual and bring the imminence of God's reign abruptly, forcefully to the attention of all. So the king rides into Jerusalem. He's hailed, son of David, the Messiah. And, and now, from that point, Matthew records his entry into the te temple, not as just a regular, in, a regular person entering the temple, but this is the one entering the temple who is the promised Messiah, who has the authority to disrupt business as usual, because as we'll see throughout Matthew's gospel, the temple and its leadership has been corrupted. The place where God was to be worshiped rightly had lost its way. And so here we have the king who's coming to cleanse the temple and then to pronounce judgment in the form of cursing a fig tree to declare the state of the temple. And so we're going to see the cleansing and cursing king this morning. Not cursing as in bad words, but cursing as in pronouncing judgment. That's what he does. He enters the temple, he, he cleanses it, and then walking out, he, he issues a parable in the form of a fig tree, and the cursing of the fig tree as a representation of what's going to happen to the temple. Let, let's read the verses, we'll look at the outline, and then we will uh, we'll study the verses together. So Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 12, here's what Matthew writes. Again, this is right after the entry. Verse 12, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And Jesus said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Verse 14, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, 
and they saw the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, the leaders, the chief priests, were indignant. And they said to Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read, quote, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. Verse 18, in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and he found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, to the fig tree, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but, if even, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Let, let's pray as we be, begin looking at this passage. Father, I pray that you'd give us wisdom to hear from your word. Those of us who are trusting in Christ, who've been given your Holy Spirit, would you, Spirit, help us, give us understanding, open our eyes to the wonders of your word, incline our hearts to your testimonies. And so for those here who don't know Christ, who have not been born again and received the Holy Spirit, I pray that you would convict them by your word and spirit this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, there's only two points here, two sections that we're going to work through. There's the cleansing of the temple, which is verses 12 through 17, and then there's the cursing of the fig tree, verses 18 through 22. So we start there with the cleansing of the temple, verses 12 through 17. So so here, the the authority of Jesus that we saw on display with the, the entry into Jerusalem, he was the king who entered Jerusalem, that same authority is now recognized as he enters into the temple. Now, although Matthew doesn't give a detailed timeline, as Matthew records a lot of the events in Matthew that are in Mark, Mark gives a lot more details, a lot more time, time markers and, and, and names and things like details. Matthew just says, after this, after the entry into Jerusalem, he enters the temple, and it seems as though maybe this was the same day. Well, Mark tells us, no, this was the next day. He goes, he enters into Jerusalem, and Mark actually records, he enters, enters his head into the temple, looks around, and then leaves. And then it's the next day that they come back. Doesn't matter if this is the same day or the very next day. What, what matters is that he entered Jerusalem as the king, and now he's entering the temple with that same authority. And so verse 12, Jesus entered the temple. Now, now I, you may feel like we're, we're flashing back to Sunday school, but, but I think it's helpful to, to recognize the, the, the nature of this temple. So, so maybe you're familiar with the temple, with Herod's temple, the, the temple that he built in about 20 AD or, or 20 BC. Uh, but, or 20 AD, I'm sorry, Herod built the, the temple there in Jerusalem. And so I have a slide that's, that's a bit of a picture because I think it's helpful. And so, so how the, the, this massive complex, in fact, this was the biggest complex in the Roman world. This was much bigger than Herod's palace, which was on the other side of Jerusalem. But this is on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And it's basically set up as follows. There is, now if, you have, if you, your eyes can't, can't see, um, just bear with me. But right in the middle... 
Right? There's that, that gold-plated thing. That, that's the temple. That, that's where you have the holy place and the holy of holies. That, that's where the, the, the priest would go, and then the holy of holies was the very sacred place. So that, that is where the priest would go once a year. That was off limits because that's where God's presence was said to dwell, right in the middle. And then outside of that, the, the next section, as you move farther out, you have different areas that are, that are segmented off, that are sectioned off, and there are rules and boundaries and so right outside of that, immediately after, there's a big altar right outside the, the holy place, and, and this was the court of the Israelites. Now, now, this was not to all Israelites. This was where the male Israelites could go. And they had an altar there, and they would, they would do some of the sacrifices there, and that's where the men of Israel could go and gather. Then further out, in the area which, which is, is the four pillars in the corner in the square that's further out, that is the, the court of women, and so if you're, if you're a Jewish woman, you could gather there as, as these festivities are, are, are going on and as you're, you're engaging in the ritual practices. That was the closest any woman could get to the Holy of Holies. Right? So you see how this is laid out. Well then, further out, and so if you look, you see that, that little, it looks almost like a dotted line. Right? That, that's a small fence or this l- section of lattice. And outside of that would be where the, Genti- the court of the Gentiles and so that, that was the, the last marker. So, so no non-Jewish person could enter past that short little wall. And so Herod himself, if he walked into the temple, that is as far as he could go. That was the court of the Gentiles. And so when Jesus, it said, enters the temple, he's, that, that's the first place you come to when you enter the temple. So when he enters the temple, he's, he's coming into the court of the Gentiles, Okay, so, so, so you can Google that image and we're going to move past it, but, but that's just a, a visual representation. At Passover, this place is, is streaming with people. And Jesus enters into that first court and it's not empty like it is in the picture. So look there at verse 12. Jesus entered the temple and it wasn't empty because it says he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and, and he overturned the seats of those who sold pigeons. And so Jesus enters the temple and he drives out those who are selling and buying in the temple. He overturns the tables of the money changers who are there in the court of the Gentiles and he overturned the seats of those who sold pigeons. Now, what's important to recognize in what's going on here is those actions in and of themselves are not the issue. These things were normal and necessary for these big feasts, these gathering times in Jerusalem. In fact, listen to how one commentator explains the necessity of, of the act of buying and selling. So the need for sacrificial animals and the need for birds, especially at Passover, which is what this time is, the the need was immense. And since the priests had to certify the purity of these animals, people would naturally purchase them at the temple itself rather than walk them through the streets of the city and take the chance of their being rendered impure somehow. And so you, you bring spotless animals to sacrifice at the Passover. And the priest is sitting there and he examines your animals. What better way to say, hey, I, I know you don't have, a, ha, have a, an animal with you, but here we have some. They are pure and I, I've examined them all. They're good. Okay, well, we'll alter those according to the law. And so it was helpful for someone who wanted to follow the law and offer a spotless animal. They could buy it right there and avoid, you know, if they, their kid takes the, the animal through the street and lets, lets the pigeon go, shoot, we don't have it anymore, or, or, or some other desecration happens. And so, so it wasn't wrong, per se, for there to be the selling of animals for the purpose of worship. Or, or the money changers, another issue, you, you have these pilgrims who have come from all over the Roman world. And, and their money, where they live, has, has the images of, of the emperor on them. 
And, and it was not allowed to, to use this money to, to put into the temple treasury, to pay the taxes. And so they would change the money for pure silver that was accepted there. And so there's a money changer. And so that, that would be a normal practice. So the issue was not the buying or selling or the, the changing of money. Now, now we, will, we will certainly recognize that there was probably some, some uh, unjust dealings in these practices, but that's not the issue that Jesus is addressing here. In fact, in many ways, the, these activities would, would make it easier for Jewish people to participate in the events of, in Passover. And so verse 12, the context, Jesus goes into the temple and he did these things. That's, that's the issue. It's not the practice of these, it's the place that these are being practiced. These money changers and these sellers, they're doing these things in the temple, in the court of the Gentiles that was set aside specifically for the Gentiles to worship the God of Israel. These things are taking place within the confines of the temple. And because of that, all of this activity is, is prohibiting the temple from doing what it was intended to do. I mean, look what Jesus says in verse 13 as, as, he's, as he's carrying out these activities, these actions, these, these cleansing actions. He says to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. So, so do you see the issue? The house of prayer has become a house of robbers. Or, or more, more literally, the house of prayer has become a hideout for robbers or bandits. And so the issue is that the house of the Lord has been transformed and, and not for the better. That's the issue. And the transformation is seen, according to Jesus, by the noise and the chaos that's taking place within the confines of the temple. And, and so, so the two parts. For part one is an Old Testament quote. The house of prayer, it's not a house of prayer anymore, that's part one. Part two, it's now a den of robbers. And so the part, part, first part of the charge is the temple is not functioning the way it's intended to function. And to make that point, Jesus f- focuses, he quotes Isaiah chapter 56. So, so when he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, he's, he's quoting an Old Testament passage, Isaiah chapter 56. And the entire passage, the section of Isaiah 56 that he's quoting is, you can even look at the, the heading of your Old Testament, the, the passage, the heading is salvation for foreigners. And so he's quoting from a passage of Isaiah where the salvation of the, the Gentiles is celebrated. So, so listen to, this is verse six and seven of Isaiah chapter 56 that Jesus quotes here in this context. Isaiah writes, to the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to the Lord, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane and everyone who holds fast to my covenant, there I will bring to my holy mountain. That's Jerusalem, the temple. And I will make them joyful in my house. And their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. That's the foreigners. They're gonna come to the holy hill of the Lord and worship And he ends, for, here's why this is all going to happen, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So so the Old Testament promise, do you see how the holy mountain was to function in Jerusalem? The foreigners were to enter into covenant with the Lord through the ministry of Israel, and they were to be welcomed, to participate. And the promise was that the house of the Lord was to be a house of prayer for all people. It was a place where the Lord God could be worshipped rightly among all the nations, and as we know, the, the story of the Bible, this is the plan all along. It doesn't begin in Isaiah 56. This is the promise to Abraham. Through you, all nations are going to be blessed. 
Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be a blessing to all peoples. From Abraham to the Great Commission, we'll read about it at the end of Matthew's Gospel. The plan has always been for God to bless all nations and all nations to worship God rightly. And as Jesus steps in the temple, that's not happening. And so as he enters the temple, specifically enters the court of the Gentiles, he doesn't find Gentiles praying and worshiping the God of Israel. Instead, he finds a place that's been set apart, that has been set apart for non-Israelites to worship, filled with noisy animals, with money changing, with trading. In a word, he finds it filled with chaos. Which means, think about this, the Gentile who's journeyed to Jerusalem for the Passover to worship the God of Israel comes into the temple to pray and sees the signs and says, you worship here. He or she comes to that place where, where it's been designated for him or her to worship and pray and participate in the worship of the God of Israel. And there he finds a street circus. It's not like the Gentile pilgrim could then say, well, this is too noisy here. I'm going to find another seat. This is his place of worship. That's it. And the place reserved for them had been overrun by commerce and trade. And that's a problem. And it's a problem with the leadership of the temple, right? You, you don't get to this place, right? The, the fact that the court of the Gentiles was now overrun with, with these activities, instead of them happening outside of the temple, it says a lot about the leadership. You can't establish these practices inside the temple unless you decide that this court of the Gentiles really isn't that important. You don't allow this to happen if you value the Gentiles rightly worshiping the Lord, but that wasn't happening. There was, there's a nationalistic flavor to what's happened in Jerusalem. Gentiles don't matter. Which, again, goes against the very God-given purpose that we just read about in Isaiah 56. And so the temple, it's not a place of prayer. That's the first issue. But the second part is that it is now a den of robbers or a hiding place for bandits. And just like the quote from Isaiah 56, this second part is from an Old Testament passage, the den of robbers. He doesn't just say that. He's quoting from Jeremiah chapter 7. And in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11 specifically, Jeremiah asks a rhetorical question, has this house, which is called by, na by, na by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes in Jeremiah 7. Because in the whole passage, Jeremiah is condemning the men of Judah who come before the Lord in his temple and celebrate when they have no right to do so. You can read Jeremiah 7, verses 1 through 15, but, but the problem, Jeremiah says, is that when these people come into the temple, they have no reason to rejoice in being delivered. They have no reason to celebrate in the salvation of Yahweh because, according to Jeremiah, they quote, this is Jeremiah chapter 7, here's what they do. They steal, they murder, they commit adultery, they swear falsely, they make offerings to Baal, they go after the other gods that they have not known, and then, after doing all those things, while doing all those things, and then they come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we're delivered, only to go on in all of these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Jeremiah is not happy with the Israelites, with the, the priests here of Judah. They are living adulterous lives, idolatrous lives, and then coming and saying, we're rejoicing because we're in the temple. God's presence, his blessing is here in this place, so, so we're safe here. As long as we make our, our trips here, we're okay. 
And so when Jesus says it's become a den of robbers, his, fo- his primary focus isn't a condemnation of shady business deals taking place in the temple. The issue is that the temple has become a safe haven, a, a safe place, a, a sheltering place where people go to deceive themselves, to think, I'm okay because I'm here. Jeremiah's description of the temple of his day as a den of robbers referred not so much to what went on inside the temple as to how its worshipers behaved in daily life. Do you see? What they were doing outside condemned what they were doing on the inside. And Jesus says, that's not what my house is for. It's not the purpose of the temple. The temple had become a place where the hypocrite could find safety and security. They could live however they wanted on the outside. So long as they came and participated in the temple rituals, they they could ease their guilty conscience. The temple had lost its purpose. It was no longer about the holy and righteous worship of the Lord. It was about pomp and circumstance and had become a refuge and a place to, to shelter the unrighteous, those who had no right to expect safety and peace in the presence of the Lord, but the opposite. And so I think there's a danger here. I just want to make this application. I think a danger to consider is to lose sight of, or worse, to lose completely what matters the most as a church. We we, we recognize the purpose of the temple and the purpose of every Israelite life. There's overlap there. And the purpose of the temple and the life of every Israelite was the worship of the Lord. And that worship was was to be marked by a desire in a pursuit of righteousness, of holiness. Because to be in covenant relationship with the Lord was to be wholly His, completely His. And the worship of God and the worship of idols did not coexist. And so to to pledge yourself to the covenant God of Israel was was to commit yourself to Him and His law. To choose this day who you're going to serve. And the aim of the corporate life of Israel and the individual lives of the Israelites was a right worship of the Lord. Now, in that time, the Old Covenant, there were prescribed ways. So yes, there was sin, but there was a a sacrifice for that. So you weren't perfect, but but you trusted in, in in the sacrifice what God had ordained for your forgiveness of sins. And your desire was was to follow the law. And to worship him as he had been, as he had prescribed. And we see, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, the perpetual problem among the Israelites was to worship God with their mouths while their hearts were far from him. That was a perpetual problem in the cycle of judges we're reading about. There's this cycle, yeah, we'll worship you. And there's a judge and there's deliverance. And, and then we're like, well, the judge dies and then there's idolatry. And then there's oppression and judgment. And then, and then there's fall into rebellion. And then there's oppression and calling out and then there's a deliverance and then there's falling away and then there's a deliverance and there's this cycle because the human heart is prone to to fall away from the Lord. And so that's a perpetual problem among God's people. They could go through the motions, they could attend the feasts and offer the sacrifices and follow the laws all the while forsaking him in their hearts. They could have the appearance of holiness without the real thing. And that's what was happening in the temple. And friends, this same problem persists today in the church, does it not? The same problem persists. I mean, listen, I, this, I just came across this verse this morning as I was going through, finalizing, preparing for this. But listen to 2 Timothy chapter 3, 
verse 2 and following. He's talking about this time at the end, the Apostle Paul ran to Timothy, and listen to his description. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Those are the scriptures. Now listen to verse 5 as he continues. Having all these people doing all these things, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Do you hear that phrase? That's a haunting phrase. The appearance of godliness. So, so all of these people that do all these things that Paul says, these are non-Christians. To live in these things is to be a non-Christian. And he says people are going to be doing all these things and yet have the appearance of godliness. How in the world is that possible? It's possible because you just go to the temple. I'm good. People see me doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm okay. But there's no power. Do you know what the power does? It it changes what you once were to make you what you should be. And so when you live a life of, of superficial holiness, of just going through the motions with no power, you're denying the gospel. Right? When, when you're born again, friend, you're given the Spirit of God to, to convert you. You are given new life, and your life changes. You once were one way, but now you're different. God's people are transformed by real power. The Christian is born again by the Holy Spirit and desires and pursues new life in Christ. Friend, God's people have always been and always will be set apart and distinct, both in ritualistic observances like going to church and in lives of godliness. To have one without the other is to deny the power of God in changing you. And so the danger for us as a church and as individuals, as members of it, and you don't have a healthy church without healthy members, Right, the two are connected, but the danger is to view the worship of God that takes place here on Sunday as separate or distinct from what takes place Monday through Saturday away from here. That's, that's a danger. That, that, that's God, when he saves you, he saves all of you, and he wants you to be wholly his. And so let us beware of this danger. And so two practical suggestions. Be open to rebuke and correction from other brothers and sisters. Be open to rebuke and correction from other brothers and sisters. Number two, be willing to rebuke and correct other brothers and sisters. Two simple suggestions, two sides of the same coin. Be open to rebuke and be willing to rebuke. Because the reality is, if we're called to live holy lives, if we're called to live distinct lives, if that's what we desire and what we pursue, then when we fall short, when we sin, when we fail, the solution is repentance. It is, always is, always. So, so we're aiming to live holy lives and we fall short. I fall short. We'll fall short. 
we fall short of living the lives we're called to live. I'm not calling for a perfectionism. It's not going to happen this side of eternity. But, but our aim and our desire is to pursue holiness. And when we fall short, the solution all, every time, all the time, is repentance. The solution is recognition of our sin and our turning to Christ for grace and a renewed commitment to pursue holiness, to get up and, and pursue the path that God's called us to. And let me say, no one is perfect. No one lives a perfectly holy life. We're all in process. If you're here, you need to know that every member here is in process. No one here is perfect. If you feel someone conveying to you they're perfect, then, then they're wrong. And in fact, their, their portraying of that shows that they're not perfect. Right? So, so we're all broken. We're all fallen. We're all in process. I feel like playing a psychiatrist now and saying, have, repeat after me, but I'm not going to do that. But it's okay, right? You, the, the movie Good Will Hunting, it's okay. You remember that, the moving scene? It's okay not to be okay. It's okay. Now, that's, that's the nature of membership in this body. We are all sinners. And we're all going to sin in various ways. But this means, as we're pursuing righteousness together as a body, we're not free from sin struggles. We're not. Sin, sin is going to affect our fellowship together. It's going to. We can't prevent that. But what we can do is we can help one another fight that as it rears its head. If you're a member of this local church, if you're a member of another local church, you have been added to that body to help other brothers and sisters fight their sin. That's part of the job description. To help one another fight sin. So that first suggestion is be willing to rebuke and correct another brother and sister. You have blind spots. I have blind spots. And our call is not to just pretend we don't, we don't have blind spots, but to recognize we do and we want to be open to correct and rebuke from our brothers and sisters. Oftentimes, the Lord uses others in our lives to bring sin to light. And we should welcome that. So be, be open to rebuke, but also be willing to rebuke. The goal is always repentance. And the result is godliness with real power. And we're transformed as individuals and as a body. And we're, we're testimonies to, to the transforming power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, notice what else Matthew records here. We're going to move through this rest. Verse 14 so after, after the overturning of the tables and the, the, the cleansing of the temple, notice what happens. Verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Matthew's the only gospel writer that records this healing in the temple, but I think he does it to, 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 to dis- describe or illustrate the true nature of the temple. The temple is for the power of God to be displayed in the lives of the broken. And so the blind and the lame, they've, they've been cared for through Jesus throughout his life and ministry, but now he heals them in the temple. This is the only healing that, that is recorded in the temple. And so he heals them. The house of the Lord becomes a place of universal blessing. And so the son of David, in contrast, if you remember, King David excluded the blind and the lame in 2 Samuel. So now the son of David says, no, 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 bring the blind and the lame. And they're healed. We're not surprised that he heals them. Verse 15, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did in addition to, so they see the healings, but then they hear the children crying in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. I can just imagine the kids, right? They they got in on the parade the day before 
And, and they're just, they're just all, they're all up, they, they love it. They can't get enough of this singing and this shouting. So the, the kids have followed him into the temple and they're shouting Hosanna to the son of David. They don't know what they're saying, but they're worshiping the son of David and the religious leaders are indignant. In fact, Mark says when they saw this, they, they sought how to destroy him. They can't stand what Jesus is doing. It's not in Galilee he's making this, this noise anymore. Now it's in the temple and they're afraid of him. He's on their home turf. And so they say to him, do you, do you hear what the kids are saying? You hear what the kids are saying, which is ironic, isn't it? Of all the things going on in the temple, they, they choose the voice of the kids praising Jesus to take issue with. So that, that, that's their issue. Do you hear that? I mean, they, they want Jesus. Here's their assumption. If you're a true rabbi, you, you'll shut them up. You won't receive the praise that's worthy of God alone. You, you, you don't deserve this praise. If you heard them, you would, be, you would have them be quiet. Jesus says... Yes, I hear them, but I have a question of my own. Have you never read? This is Old Testament reference. Don't you know what it says? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. Again, there's an Old Testament quote, Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8, verse 2, that the Lord God, the one who delivered Israel from their enemies, was praised even by the young ones. And a lot of people will say that Psalm 2 was closely identified with with Exodus 15 with the song of Moses after they're delivered, after they cross the Red Sea and there's the song of Moses, there's celebration. Right? And, and even the, from the oldest to the youngest, they're rejoicing at the Exodus. And so some people say that, that's the reference of Psalm 2. But the point being that, that all people were praising the Lord for what he had done for them. Even the youngest, even the mouth of children were praising, rightly praising the God who had delivered them. And so Jesus quotes that not only to equate himself with the divine name, right? He's receiving praise that only the Lord God was worthy of, but also to show the folly of these blind religious leaders. They were standing before the son of David and re- refusing to give him the praise that he deserved. And yet, here are little children doing exactly that. And so the divide is continuing to grow between Jesus and these religious leaders. Verse 17, leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Goes back probably to Lazarus' house with Martha and Mary, and then you come back the next day, which is where our second section picks up, verse 18 through 22, the cursing of the fig tree. We can move quickly through this. But again, we can't understand the fig tree apart from what's happened in the temple, from what's happened in the entry into Jerusalem. So verse 18, look at what happens. In the morning, so they're coming back to the city, they're coming back to Jerusalem, Jesus becomes hungry, sees a fig tree by the wayside, he goes to it, finds nothing on it but only leaves, and then he says to it, may no fruit ever come from you again, and the fig tree withered at once, or withered at once. Now, now again, it's confusing. There's a, there's a strange, strange occurrence. In fact, it appears to be a fit of frustration. Where Jesus is upset, he can't have his morning snack. If you're a father of young children like I am, frustration at denial of snack is a real thing. Right? It's a real thing. People can get really upset. It appears as though, Jesus, I'm hungry. This, is, this doesn't have the snack I want, so I'm going to use my divine power to curse the tree. And if that's the case, you'd say, well, what would the tree ever do to you, Jesus? Right? But that's not what's going on. There's much more going on here, much more significant. I and mean, for one thing, we, we know the fig tree at this point in the year was not supposed to have figs. I mean, in Mark's account, he says, in his account of this event, it wasn't time for figs. So, so Jesus isn't surprised that there aren't figs there. He knows the season of figs. So he doesn't curse the fig tree because of lack of self-control or out of anger about the lack of figs. In fact, he curses the fig tree to make a point. 
And here's the point. The fig tree had an appearance of health. It says he saw it. He saw the leaves on it. It was in leaf. It had the appearance of health. And so it looked healthy. And and as he gets up to it, as he examines it, a fig tree that should have been full of fruit by its appearance was empty. It was empty. It bore no fruit. The fig tree was deceptive. It looked like it bore fruit, but it was, it was barren, which is precisely the situation that Jesus and his disciples had just encountered in the temple. Right? The fig tree provides Jesus an opportunity to make a point, not about the fig tree, but about the temple. Jesus curses the tree that appears to be one way from afar. It appears to be fruitful, but in reality, it's not what it seems. The tree is guilty of false advertising, just like the temple. Hey, come worship the God of Israel here. When in reality, there's no fruit of that. Its leaves masked its fruitlessness, just like the temple. It was streaming with with people. Israelites and Gentiles had come from all over to celebrate. Their sacrifices, rituals, the appearances of right worship of God, yet it was all hollow. The temple and its leadership primarily was corrupt. The leaders were as blind as they could be, failing to see that the very God who had instituted the temple, the very God whose presence was represented by the temple, was visiting them in the person of the Messiah. That the Lord had come to dwell among them and they'd missed it. In fact, not too long after these events, the leaders would be leading the charge to crucify the Son of God who had visited them. And so the cursing of of the fig tree was a parable of Israel and the temple. That's why Jesus responds the way he does to the amazement of the disciples. Look at verse 20. So the disciples saw it. They marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And so that's the wrong question. How? Of course they know how. Jesus did it. His power has never been lacking. They, they, They marvel at how did this happen. They don't ask, well, why? Why did Jesus do this? That's why verse 21, Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt... You not only do what's been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown in the sea, it'll happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you'll, you'll receive if you have faith. Now, as we read these words, right, we, we, we think, well, that's good teaching, good things to remember, Jesus, but, but what does that have to do with the fig tree? Right? It seems to be disconnected. Are we missing something? Well, if you, if you just take these verses apart from the context, you will miss the point. But think about what's just happened in the cursing of the fig tree and what's just happened with the temple and where the temple was located. And so, so he's telling these disciples that the power that he's just used to wither the fig tree is the power they will possess, right? You'll be able to be able to do great things. That's true for them. And they will. The book of Acts bears that out. But it's not about the fig tree. Notice what else he mentions. Even if you say to this mountain, even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown in the sea, it will happen. Now, now if you listen to Caleb, our family listens to Caleb, nothing against Caleb, but there's lots of songs about God moving mountains. And I'm sure maybe you've heard a sermon about it. And I don't want to downplay the, the, the power of God to move mountains. But that's, that's not the point here. The point isn't the moving of, of these abstract mountains. Jesus isn't talking about mountains in an abstract sense. He says... Even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown in the sea, it will happen. So, so he's not talking about literally taking up mountains and moving. He's talking about what's, what's dwelling on the mountain. It's the temple. 
I mean, why in the world, I mean, if you're a disciple, why in the world would a disciple want to just pick up any mountain and throw it into the sea? Right? I mean, we live in Virginia. We've got beautiful mountains, don't we? I mean, the Blue Ridge Parkway wouldn't be the same if they're all in the Atlantic Ocean. Wouldn't be the same. And the Atlantic Ocean wouldn't be the same. So, so it's not about this literal moving of a mountain, but, but it's about what is represented by the mountain. And he's making the point about the specific mountain and the temple in Jerusalem. That is the mountain. That's why the visit of the temple, the cleansing of the temple, is always mentioned in occurrence with the fig tree. Jesus and the gospel writers don't want us to miss the connection. And the point, what's going to be borne out the rest of the New Testament, is that the worship of God was not dependent on the mountain. The temple in Jerusalem wasn't a non-negotiable in the right worship of God. In fact, it could be thrown into the sea, and guess what? The people of God could still be marked by prayer because it wasn't about the temple. Jesus, as he enters the final week of his life, he knows his death and resurrection are coming. And he knows they're going to radically change the presence of God among his people. The, the function of the temple, yes, it had served its purpose, but the function of the temple was fading away. The intimate relationship between God and his people was not dependent upon the temple anymore. Jesus had come. It wasn't about the temple. It was about Jesus. Jesus was the temple. I'm not just saying this. Jesus says this. Jesus was the place where God met with his people. In fact, in 40 years, 40 years from the time that this, this conversation takes place between Jesus and his disciples, 40 years from that time, the temple is going to be destroyed. It's going to be destroyed in AD 70. And at a time when most Jews regarded the temple as the place where prayer was particularly effective. We've got to get to the temple because that's where God will hear us. Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter. It's not about the temple. It's about me. And as long as you come to me, your prayer will be heard and you can do anything if you're coming through me in prayer. The effectiveness of the disciples' prayer has nothing to do with the temple or its sacrifices. Jesus wants them to know the right worship of God instead was not going to be dependent on what took place inside those temple gates. Instead, it was going to be entirely dependent upon what was going to take place outside the city in a matter of days on a hill called Golgotha where the Son of God was going to be crucified. That's where the central point of relationship with God was going to be found. And so Jesus closes this conversation with encouragement, verse 22, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. What matters isn't the temple. What matters is faith in the Son of God and dependence upon God because where that's present, where that's present God's presence is. And so the final point of application is simply this. Jesus transforms the role of the temple. It will get to it in a couple weeks, but at his trial, one of the main charges brought against him is his, his promise to destroy the temple. I mean, all three gospel writers talk about this man said he's going to tear down the temple, he's going to destroy the temple, and then rebuild it in three days. And so Jesus declared, this temple, tear it down, it's going to be rebuilt in three days. And he wasn't talking about the temple in Jerusalem. He's talking about his body. His declaration is that I am the temple. And so that changes how we read Matthew 21, because Jesus is the temple. We, we're seeing the, the beginning of the fall of the temple, the transformation of the temple. Jesus comes and redefines the meeting place between God and man. And by doing so, he, he also redefines how we understand the temple. There's no temple in Jerusalem right now where, where God uniquely dwells. 
That's not the reality in the new covenant. And I don't think the hope is of a temple, literal temple being rebuilt in the city. I don't think that's the hope of the Christian. I think the hope of the Christian is a dwelling place with God in new heaven and new earth. That's another discussion for another day. But, but just think about this. Think about this. The, the dwelling of God with his people. It began in the Garden of Eden, didn't it? Walking in the garden, they, they heard the sound of his voice. God creates his people to dwell with him. And, and then after the fall, they're cast out. But, but God is always working to, to reestablish that, the tent of meeting or the tabernacle and the temple. It's where God's presence uniquely dwelt. But when Jesus shows up, it's, it's the fulfillment of all that that was pointing to. He comes as the substance that all the other meeting places were pointing to. Jesus comes as the place, the temple where God and man meet. It's not about location anymore. It's not about nationality anymore. It's not about everyone coming to Jerusalem anymore. Instead, it's about God, by his spirit, through the gospel, extending to the ends of the earth. I mean, at the end of his life, when, when Jesus dies, do you remember what happened to the temple in the curtain? It was torn, wasn't it? And a lot of times we think, well, it was torn, so then now anyone could go into the Holy of Holies. Well, well that's not, I don't think that's the point. Instead, with the, the, the curtain torn, now God's presence is free to, to move about. And the book of Acts records the presence of God moving throughout the nations through the message of this gospel. So God has gone out. It's not, it's not come to Jerusalem. It's, it's come here, the message of the crucified Savior who's, who's been raised and is coming again. And so God, in the, the new covenant, the work that he's accomplished through his Son, the work that's applied by the Holy Spirit, the result is that now God dwells in his people. You are the temple if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so all the awe and majesty that mark the holy of holies, it's now in you. Can you believe that? What privilege. The Holy Spirit of God dwells within his people. So this, this building isn't the church. The church is the people, the, the redeemed men and women who've been reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who've been united to Christ have peace with God, not, not peace through coming to a building or peace through doing the right things or peace by living a holy life, but peace through our Lord Jesus Christ, through faith in him. And so I just want to close simply by asking you, are, do you have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you a dwelling place of the triune God this morning? Does, does Jesus, through his spirit, dwell in you? Because if you're trying to do this Christian thing apart from that, you're going to fail over and over and over because you will have godliness without power. And your life will be hollow. But peace with God comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, so if you're here and you're not a Christian, you don't, you don't know peace with God, you're not going to get it by just showing up week after week. You're not going to get it by, by trying to be better than you are worse not going to get it by, by doing anything other than looking to the Lord Jesus Christ and crying out for mercy, save me. That, that's the cry that leads to peace with God. And so if you haven't done that, we'll, we'll, we'll encourage you, I will encourage you, turn to Jesus. Cast yourself on his mercy. He will receive you and he will give you peace and his Holy Spirit to indwell in you and lead you. Well, let's pray as we close.